Hey y'all, and welcome to Feasting on Truth. I'm Erin Warren. Today's passage in John is a hard one, and I'd love nothing more than to skip straight to the resurrection, to the good news. But it's important as believers to remember Jesus's death, to remember what he suffered. There's so much symbolism in this chapter, and John points us to numerous prophecies as he writes with the intent of pointing us to the truth of who Jesus is. You can find more information about this Bible study as well as other Feasting on Truth Bible studies at feastingontruth.com slash Bible study. And let's get right to it. Here's John 19. We are in John chapter 19 tonight. And um, this one, honestly, was really hard from the get-go. Um, and I, in full disclosure, put off studying it as long as I possibly could this week. Um, I read it on Thursday or Friday, I think, and I was like, oh, this is gonna be really hard. Um, and I finally, um, after putting it off for a couple days, um, dove in deep um, yesterday because I, I just didn't want to sit in this. Um, at the end of chapter 18, the religious leaders had brought Jesus to Pilate. Um, remember, they didn't go in, so Pilate brings him in and um, and questions him, and he goes back to the Jewish leaders and he says, you know, I don't find any fault in him. And they are asking for the, he goes, I can release a prisoner to you. I'll release him. And they say, no, release Barabbas, who was a zealot, a revolutionary, um, an insurrectionist. And they ask for him instead. And so that's the last um, piece that we studied last week. Um, and as much as I want to skip chapter 19 and go right to 20. I want to go right to the resurrection. I want to go right to the light. I want to go right to singing arise. <laughs> it is important for us to see the cost and the weight of our sin, because in order for us to fully grasp our salvation, we need to know what we were saved from. I think we often preach the gospel with this emphasis of what Jesus Christ did for us without fully understanding the wrath and the fear that we lived under before coming to him and before knowing him. And it's only when we humbly confront the reality of the cross that we can truly rejoice at the resurrection. Matthew Henry in his commentary for this chapter says, it is good for everyone with faith to behold Jesus Christ in his sufferings and Behold him and love him and be still looking unto Jesus. So with that, we're going to start in verse one. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, hail king of the Jews and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, 
crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said, take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. So we see um, what was common in this day for the Roman military to mock and to um, flog and beat prisoners. And they put a crown of thorns on his head and a purple robe and Pilate shoves him back outside and presents him as the king of the Jews. And the crowd that's gathered, which is mostly comprised of religious leaders, says crucify him. And this is the first place we see this call to crucify Jesus. Crucifixion was capital punishment. It was humiliating. Um, the victims were usually naked and they it was seen as the worst possible form of execution, more than being fed to wild animals, more than being burned alive at the stake. It has a long history, but during this particular time in history, it was most commonly used for lower classes, um, non-citizens, violent criminals, slaves, and threats to the Roman Empire. Um, I wanna read this description straight out of my cultural background study Bible um, because they just say it so well. Victims were often scourged or otherwise tortured prior to crucifixion. Crucifixions were carried out on either a single vertical stake or a vertical stake with a cross beam near its top. Sometimes blocks were attached to the stakes at the seat or um, as a seat or footrest or both. Depending on the presence of these blocks, the victims might linger alive for up to three days. The blocks allowed a victim to rest some of the weight, increasing the chance of breathing and proper circulation. Without the blocks, a victim's weight would rest totally upon his arms, which were attached to the cross piece by ropes, nails, or both. This would prohibit breathing and circulation and lead to brain and heart failure. To end the torture, victims' legs could be broken, after which death would follow quickly. And oftentimes, the charge against the guilty party would be written out and nailed to the cross above his head. As a deterrent to would-be rebels and criminals, crucifixions were usually carried out in highly visible places. During Jesus's lifetime, crucifixion was used by Romans to exercise and gruesomely display their authority over others. So this wasn't um, this wasn't what we often see depicted in our passion plays. It was gruesome. It was humiliating, um, and it was a horrible thing to behold. And this is what they are asking to happen to Jesus. Um, and Pilate responds, I don't find any fault in him. You take him and you do it. And the Jews answered him, verse seven, we have a law and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you or authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, who 
he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And from then on, Pilate sought to release him. Notice Pilate's reaction when the crowd says that he's made himself the son of God. He grew more afraid. He was filled with fear and he goes back and he asks Jesus where he's from and Jesus remains silent. Remember um, that line from Isaiah 53, which we have been kind of reading alongside of this, that um, he would be silent over the charges brought before him. And Pilate basically says, I have authority over your fate. And Jesus responds, you can only have authority over me if it were given to you from above. And I think it's interesting that as I was studying um, that Caiaphas, who is the high priest, who is who brought him to Pilate, was actually not placed in the role of high priest by the way that God had laid out in the law. He was given his role by the Roman government. And so Caiaphas, even being in his position, is breaking the Jewish law. And I never noticed this little detail before. Um, last week in my group, one of the girls shared that she felt like someone had rewritten her Bible because she saw so many things in John 18 she had never seen before. And I was like, me too. And I felt that way again this week. There were so many little details that jumped out at me that I know I've read these passages before, but I never noticed that Pilate sought to release Jesus. Um, he was trembling in fear, but the Jewish leaders would not have it. And what's interesting here is they're twisting their own law because under biblical law, they were allowed to put someone to death for being a false prophet, but there was no law um, against claiming to be the Messiah. And it certainly was not considered a capital offense because one day a Messiah would come and they had the hope of that, um, but they were prohibited by the Roman government, if you'll remember, from executing anyone. And so they could not execute under their own law. And so they are trying to pass that on to the Roman government and make the Roman government guilty. And so we see this irony again, verse 12. So from then on, Pilate sought to release them, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And so we see Pilate, who did not know God, respond with fear and seek to release Jesus. And we see these Jewish leaders are using fear and manipulation to twist and get what they want. And we know from Matthew 27, 24 through 26, that Pilate then washes his hands as a symbol of saying that his, Jesus's blood is not on him, but it is on them. Verse 13, so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of the preparation of Passover and it was the sixth hour, so it would have been about noon. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So they delivered him. So he delivered him to be over to be crucified. It was the day of preparation of, Pass of the Passover. And I just want to make a quick note there because we see this phrase three times in John 19. 
Um, Mark does also say that this happened on the, that Jesus's crucifixion happened on the day of preparation. It's a slightly altered timeline. Um, this would have meant that um, this would be taking place on Thursday, not Friday. Um, and so there's some debate among scholars about um, is, um, there's some debate around which one is correct or is John, which was a typical, um, a typical practice among writers to, to make a point to kind of reorganize. And we've seen where he's kind of taken stories and put them out of order so that they're written in a way to lead us to that decision point. But John very clearly writes with this pointing us to Jesus as the sacrificial lamb. And the day of preparation was the day that the lambs that would be sacri were sacrificed, where they would all be killed, the, the lambs that they would use for the Passover feast that evening. And so um, he is pointing us to Jesus as the sacrificial lamb that he would have been killed around the same time as the lambs were in the temple for Passover. And that's not the only comparison he makes. In fact, he compares several aspects of the Passover lamb to, um, uh, to Jesus's death. And my heart, y'all, as I read this, these couple of verses right here, my heart just broke reading the response of the chief priests. We have no king but Caesar. I wanted to give them the benefit of the doubt and say that they were just talking about the ruler and, you know, like we have a president and then we have our God. But the Greek word um, that's used for king here, it means the leader of the people, the sovereign, the Lord of the lamb. But it was not a term that was merely only used for earthly kings. It was also used of God. And in fact, one of the Passover prayers confirmed God as their only king. And so here on the, on the eve of Passover, we find the chief priests claiming that they have no king but Caesar. They don't want to go into the house to defile themselves, but they are willing to do what they can to give Jesus over to the Roman government to be crucified. So they took Jesus, verse 17, and he went out bearing his own cross. We see John pointing us to Jesus laying his life down in several places, and this is one of them, that he would bear his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is Golgotha. There they crucified him and with two others, one on either side, Jesus between them. And Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was in Aramaic, in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Okay, so before I get to that, remember anytime we see um, a place, um, this is why we have our maps in our book. And so you can see here, 
there are actually two places where they think that Jesus may have been crucified. Um, one of those is right here. This is the more traditional. Um, there are some people who feel like it might have been just north of the city. But as you can see, it's very close to the city, just outside the walls. And so um, they would have taken him, and I forgot to show this last week, um, the high priest's house, which would have been very close to the upper room. But they would have taken him to this palace right here. Um, and then um, this is where they took him from the palace through. Um, this right here would be the old um the old city border and then take him out to Golgotha to be crucified. Um, and this also is one of those details that I had never seen before <laughs> that they went back to Pilate and they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Can you not write the king of the Jews? Can you say this man said he was the king of the Jews? Because then it looks like to them that the king of the Jews is being crucified. Um, and Pilate's like, nope, I said what I said. Um, I thought that was slightly humorous. Um, verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and, <clears throat> excuse me, and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. This is a reference to Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, 18, um, where it talks about um, that they divide my garments. It literally says that they divide my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. But this entire scripture, Psalm 22, is um, often pointed to as a messianic prophecy. Um, verse, um, the very first verse um, of Psalm 22 is um, what Jesus Christ said on the cross that we see um, in Matthew and Mark about, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, and so this would have been to them a very familiar psalm. They would have recognized it. And so when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, it would have triggered in their mind the rest of the words to this psalm. And I think it's Jesus pointing to his, um, that this psalm is about him. Um, in the same way that if you hear the first line of a song and then you can sing the rest of the song, my kids do this to me all the time. They sing one line of a song and then the rest of the song gets stuck in my head the rest of the day. Um, that's a really great Psalm for you to read on your own, particularly um, as we approach Easter. So that's Psalm 22. Um, but there are several places in there that point to Jesus on the cross. Um, verse 25. But standing by the cross were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. And we see this beautiful moment where Jesus gives care of his mother over to John the disciple whom he loved. 
um, women in that day. And by the way, him calling his mom woman in the same way that we saw in um, John chapter two, where when um, they were at the wedding at Cana, and he said, woman, my time has not come. This was not a derogatory term. It was actually a term of endearment um, or respect in their language. Um, there's something lost in the translation of that one. Um, but women in that day, they needed a male advocate. They needed a male to be responsible for them because they couldn't go to court. And there were so many things um, that a widowed woman would not um, be able to, to take care of herself. And typically that role would fall to her eldest son, which for Mary would be Jesus. And in his death, and even though he had younger brothers, um, instead, he wants to make sure that his mother is protected and cared for. And so he gives charge of his mother to John. Um, and there's some really like beautiful things, I think, that happen um, in the early church. And even possibly um, that when John was in Ephesus, that Mary would have been with him and that when Paul and Luke were traveling that Luke would have interviewed Mary and that's why we have the account that we do in Luke chapter two of the birth of Christ. Um, it's just, but I love that Jesus in his agony, in his pain is caring for his mom. Verse 28, after this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. And a jar of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge of full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus, knowing that all was now finished. We see John again pointing to the omniscience of Jesus. And he says to fulfill scripture, I thirst, which is a reference again to Psalm 22. Um, and they use a hyssop branch. And here's what's really cool about a hyssop branch is that in Exodus 12, 21 through 22, when Moses is giving the commands to the Israelites for the very first Passover, and he's telling them that they are going to slaughter a lamb and they're going to paint the blood on the doorposts of their house. And when the angel comes, he will pass over the houses that are covered by the blood of the lamb. And do you know what they painted the blood of the lamb onto their doorposts with? Hyssop. They used a hyssop branch. Um, we also see David talk about hyssop in Psalm 51.7. This is the Psalm after he got caught in all the stuff with Bathsheba and her husband, um, and this is him crying out for God's forgiveness and mercy. Um, he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And so there's some um, quality of cleansing that comes with the hyssop. And they use that to, to paint the blood on the doorpost and they use it to give the sour wine to Jesus. And then he says, it is finished. In Greek, it's one word and it means to execute, to perform, to complete and to fulfill. Jesus had done all God had commanded him to. He had done so with complete and perfect obedience. And now his suffering was over. 
And it echoes the final verse or the final words of Psalm 22, where it says, he has done it. It is finished. Jesus took on the full weight, the full weight of the wrath of God hanging on that cross. Every sin that had ever been committed, every sin that was yet to be committed, he bore the weight of it. He bore the weight of every selfish decision I have ever made. And he not only did that for me, he did it for you. And like we saw prophesied in Psalm 53, verse four, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he gave up his spirit. John points again, his spirit was not taken from him, but he gave it up willingly for us. And in Matthew and Mark's account of this crucifixion, we see the proof. Because the curtain that was in the temple, the one that divided the holy of holies, that separated off the presence of God, the place where only one man, after a very strict ritual cleansing, could enter one time a year to give atonement for the sins of the entire world, that curtain tore in two from top to bottom. And through Jesus' sacrifice, through his blood, through his life, through his obedience, through him bearing the weight of the full wrath of God on the cross, it opened a new way for us to have relationship with our Father. We now have peace with God. That's what Romans 5, 1 through 5 talks about. We are no longer at war with him. We have access to him. And through that, we have healing for our souls. Verse 31, since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might not be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. For these things took place that scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So we see this again, the reference to the day of preparation. They want to speed this along because they want to get to their Passover, um, their Passover meals. And so they ask that the legs be broken. As we read earlier, that was a way to kind of speed up um, because really, honestly, the cruelty of the crucifixion isn't that you died from bleeding out or that you died from the the nails piercing it's that you died of 
of asphyxiation that you suffocated um, or that you had some sort of brain or heart attack because you couldn't breathe. And so in order to get a breath, you would have to push up with your back scraping against the cross and the wood, pain shooting through your feet and your legs and your wrists and your arms. And so to speed up the process by breaking their legs, they could no longer push up and they would die rapidly after that. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. And there's two prophecies here that, um, that John points us to. He points to so many in this passage um, that his bones would not be broken. In Exodus 12, 46, we see that the Passover lamb was not to have any of its bones broken during the sacrifice. Um, and then we also see when they pierce his side, blood and water flow out. This was a theme that I saw when we did our tabernacle study, that, that both blood and water are necessary for the covering and the washing, that the blood covered the sin and the water washed away. And so we see here that when Jesus was pierced, both blood and water flowed, blood to cover and water to wash away. Zechariah 12, 10 through 13, 10, 12, 10 through 13, 1 says, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on, on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for that firstborn. Let's get down to Verse 14, uh, 13, and on that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and uncleanliness. So we see the, the one that has been pierced will be the vehicle for cleansing and cleaning and purifying the house of Israel and those who believe in him. And then lastly, we see the piercing. We see that in Zechariah 12. We see it in Psalm 22. We see it in Isaiah 53. And don't miss verse 35. This is one of my favorite verses. John says, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. We know John is standing there because he just was given Jesus's mother. And he's going, I saw this, it's true. And if you remember the reason why John wrote this in the first place, it's so that we might believe in Jesus as the son of God, as the Messiah. He says, it's true, all of it. I was there. There's a place in the back of your book for you to be able to keep track of all of these prophecies. If you haven't been, um, this is a great um, gleaning activity is to go back through your notes at the end of the study and, and to list out all these places where John points to Jesus being the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy or how the festivals and the pictures that we see in Passover and some of the other festivals point us to Jesus. Um, John is writing that we might believe and he's leading us to that decision point yet again. Verse 38, after all these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. 
And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So the day of, so because of the Jewish day of preparation, third time we've seen that, since the tomb was close at hand, Jesus laid there. So we see these two men who against their station in life chose Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea, who is of the elite, um, Nicodemus, who came to him in the cover of night as a religious leader. Um, there was great risk for them to go to Pilate. A family member could go and ask for the body, but if somebody from the Jewish um, religious leaders or the elite were to go, they were putting um, their themselves at risk that they would be persecuted by the other religious leaders. Um, it was typically something that was only done from, from family members to go and ask for the body. And yet, because of their love for Jesus, they chose Jesus. They went and asked and prepared him for burial and buried him in a tomb where no one had been laid. The Pharisees continued to not believe, but Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus chose to follow. And I know that this chapter was really hard to read. It begs us to ask the question, what kind of God would require a blood sacrifice? It seems like a barbaric movie plot, honestly, but we must remember that our God is holy. That's not his meanness, it's just who he is. And when he cast Adam and Eve out of the garden, it wasn't because he was mad at them for doing something he was, they weren't supposed to. It was for their protection. It was his kindness to them because he knew that because their eyes had been opened, because they now had sin in their life, that if they stayed in the garden, they would have to be separate. If they ate from the tree of life, that they would live forever in separation from God. And so he takes them from the garden as a kindness and a protection so that he could provide a way that one day we could have that communion with him again. And he did so through the life of Jesus. He didn't have to, but he sent Jesus anyway. Hebrews 12, 18 through 24. And honestly, I have a few verses from Hebrews and there is a ton in Hebrews that points us to Jesus' sacrifice for us and draws so many parallels between the tabernacle and between the Jewish sacrificial system and how Jesus is the fulfillment of that. And I did that in the Waymaker study that I did over Advent um, and they're all in season two of the podcast. So if you wanna go back and listen to some of those, you can do that. Hebrews 12, 18 through 24 says, for you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. 
for they could not endure the order that was given that even if a beast touches this mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the innumerable angels in the festal gatherings and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We do not have to come to God trembling in fear anymore. We do not come to what may not be touched. Jesus mediated a new covenant on our behalf. And because of that, we have access to approach the throne of grace with confidence. And it's only because of Jesus. Isaiah 53, 11 through 12, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He made intercession for us. He did what we could not do for ourselves. And it is only through his death. I want to read two more passages out of Hebrews 2, 9 through 11. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by grace, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And then jumping down to 2.14. Since therefore children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through the fear of death who were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Through his death, he destroyed the one who has the power of death. It's done. The victory is won. He died not merely to forgive you of your sins or to give you eternal life and let you into heaven. And if we look at the crucifixion with only that, that as our lens, then we are at risk for believing that he is a God of favors. And we will look at God as a vending machine. Christ's death bought us so much more. It bought us relationship. It restored the opportunity for us to have relationship with the almighty God. It released us from the fear of death 
it bought for us a helper, the Holy Spirit, the very glory of God living inside of us to help us as we navigate this already, but not yet. It bought us adoption into the holy family and every spiritual blessing. And we are no longer a slave to sin and fear and death. We are adopted and grafted into the family of God. And our response should be that of the Israelites at Passover in Exodus 12, 26 through 27. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover for he passed over the house of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses and the people bowed their heads in worship. We will tell others that the blood of the lamb covered our sin and the water washed away and that we are delivered from the evil one, that we are now restored to a right standing with God. And because of it, we should worship. Matthew Henry says, and now let us pause and with faith look upon Jesus. Was ever sorrow like unto his sorrow? See him bleeding, see him dying, see him and love him, love him and live to him. Let's worship him. This is the gospel that we couldn't save ourselves that the old covenant showed us our own need for a savior and one that we couldn't do on our own. And Jesus came, not reluctantly, reluctantly, but willingly. He laid his life down. He stepped out and said, I am. He bore his own cross on our behalf and he gave himself up. And so now we rejoice as in Zephaniah 3, 14 through 15, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleansed away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst and you shall never again fear evil. I wanna close with the, echoing the call of Hebrews 3.15, that if today you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Choose to believe, choose truth, because he died for you, not merely to forgive your sins or, or to give you eternal life in heaven. His death was so much greater. Through his death, it opened the way for us to have relationship and peace with God Almighty. I really don't have much else to say. <laughs> I'm just so thankful for God's grace to us through the cross. I've always defined grace as getting what we don't deserve, but I've learned it's so much more than that. The Greek word carries this intonation of God bending down to us. God's grace given through Jesus is not that he gives us what we don't deserve. It's not that we get forgiveness in heaven. It's 
that he gives us himself and I'll never get over it. Let's pray. Father, I I have no words that will ever be able to express the gratitude of what you did in sending Jesus. I will um, spend the rest of my life, Lord, following you. God, I pray that every woman listening, God, that she would impress upon her heart the truth of who you are, that you would remind her of what your death purchased for her. God, that you did not die so that we could continue to live under the weight of fear and sin and the the fear of death and the fear and the anxiety and the guilt and the shame. Lord, that is not from you. God, I pray that you would release them, that they would remember, Lord, that you died for their freedom. Lord, that you are now a banner over them of victory and that we um, can look upon you, look upon your suffering and love you and live for you. It is in your name we pray. Amen.